at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Today I, I have with me a friend and a colleague, a collaborator, many hats. Uh, I'm so happy to have Dr. Sarah Byrne with me today. She's an assistant professor in the Continuing Professional Development and Division of Medical Education at Dalhousie University. Thank you, Sarah, for being with us and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Like I mentioned to you already over email, when I got the invitation, I think I probably did a happy dance because I love podcasts and I think you're fulfilling one of my my non-professional goals of being a guest on a podcast. So thanks very much. Oh, that would I think is going to be a really fun conversation. And so. I'm going to start from very early on in your life. Like I, and I know that you will be a great person to do this. I was wondering when I was thinking about the conversation with you because you've have traveled a very different journey and we all have different journeys mm -hmm. but but we know the least about people is when they were growing up so what's the story of Sarah growing up what was Sarah curious about when she was growing up oh my gosh that's you know it's funny I thought a little bit about that because I think I read somewhere that what you enjoy doing as a child is kind of, it, it comes back. Um, it's typically kind of the direction that you go in, in your professional life. And so when I think about, you know, little Sarah as an elementary school age child or things like that, uh, I played a lot on my own. Um, part of that was just because I had two older brothers and the age difference is such that I usually was my own playmate. Um, where we lived, we lived in the country. So like, it wasn't always easy to go hang out with friends or go to friends' houses. So there's a lot of kind of imaginative play, um, make believe. I remember like creating these really extravagant storylines with my dolls and my Barbies and, and, and kind of just playing a lot on my own. I always enjoyed reading. Um, I've always enjoyed kind of like writing stories, asking questions. And I think Even when I was little, I was always observing the interactions that people had with one another, why people behaved in the ways that they did. Um, I was also very attached to my mom. Like, so wherever she went, I would go too. And because of just kind of the circles that my mom um, were in and like different volunteer opportunities, like I would just go with her to those things. And so at a very early age, I was kind of immersed in like an adult culture. Like I would be listening in on adult conversations and wondering why are they talking about things like this? And, and so my comfort with adults and, and older people was just kind of came quite early. And I don't know if that's unique, but it seemed unique to my experience. So Lots of um, kind of imaginary play. Um, I was a shy kid, um, but loved school. Like literally would cry when school would be canceled because of a weather delay. Um, so again, no surprise that I went into education and later into kind of medical education. Just I just love I just love school. I'm also a little bit stubborn, um, and so I like to have my way. <laughs> and that came out, I think, a little bit as a child too. Like um, I wanted things in a certain order and, and things to unfold in a certain way. And so 
again, I think it's no surprise I probably went into education research because I get to really be the kind of the leader um, and, and kind of be a facilitator in many ways too. So yeah, um, yeah, it, overall though, really good um, upbringing, um, had a lot of great opportunities. Um, I loved music. Um, I loved acting, which is kind of weird, like just that make-believe kind of piece. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's no surprise that I kind of went into the professional direction that I did. So speaking of that, I, I would like to touch on that. You chose education as your kind of schooling years, and you said it's no surprise, but did you plan for it? Or was there a particular experience that you had that made you go, I really like that part, like teaching and interacting with the students? Yeah, so I think some of it is just because I loved being a student. Um, I loved school, as I mentioned already. I loved the immersion. I loved the relationships that you would have um, with your friends, but also with your teachers. I also had some really good teachers. Like I can name exactly who they are and when they came into my life and what it is about them that stood out to me. Um, and it was kind of something I think I just wanted to, the impact that those teachers had on my life is not something that I've forgotten. And so mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to go into a profession where I had the opportunity to like make someone feel heard and seen and to give opportunities for people to express themselves and to, um, you know, facilitate opportunities for people to try things that maybe they never previously would entertain. And so I always, it's kind of no surprise that I went into that profession because I felt like education was the pathway for me to be able to do that. Um, I just also loved the kind of creativity that comes with being a teacher and an educator and that you can constantly try new things um, and adapt and, and pivot if need be. And so I just, I liked, I liked that piece of it too. So I don't think, I didn't know off the get-go um, that I would go into that. I actually, like my undergraduate degree is in communication studies. And so I thought I would go into something media related. Um, you know, in my high, high school, I did a, a co-op placement at a radio station. Um, I, and so I thought like, I would love to be a talk show host. Like that to me <laughs> is like so cool. Cause you get to ask people questions about, about their lives. And so, um, I actually thought I would go that direction. Um, but it wasn't until undergraduate, um, education that I started thinking, oh, maybe education is where I belong. I was working at the time part-time with like an after-school program. I love kids, like kids are hysterical and great fun to be around. Um, and so it just more and more, it felt like the natural place for me to go. And it wasn't until I actually applied to Teachers College and, you know, anytime you're applying for higher education, it's a bit competitive that I was like, I really remember feeling like, whoa, the stakes are high here. Like if I don't get in, I'm going to be devastated. And, you know, thankfully I, I, I was accepted to teachers college. And then it was just kind of like, yeah, this is where I belong. This, this feels right. Um, and it just felt like a natural kind of course that I would take. On that, um, I believe you taught before you engaged in a PhD and you were in a very unique environment. Yes. I, I don't remember if we just talked about it, but I'm curious about what struck you during those teaching years that actually make you think or consider the PhD route? 
Yeah, so um, right out of uh, Teachers College, I landed my first position. Um, I was teaching um, grade three in a remote First Nations community in Northern Ontario. Um, you know, fresh out of Teachers College, I wanted my own classroom, like that was kind of the dream. Um, and so I, I applied to this position. I, and to this point, to be completely transparent, knew very little about um, Indigenous education. Um, I did grow up close to a First Nations community, but knew nothing, like was not well educated. Looking back at my own teaching, my own education experiences did not have that formal education. Um, and so very naive to what this what this opportunity was going to look like and, and my position in that. But I landed my first position in this community that was, um, you know, for listeners, 500 kilometers north of Timmins, Ontario. So you, it was a fly-in community. Um, and I was excited, enthusiastic, but I was young, naive, and didn't know what I was getting myself into. But that experience was like, I mean it when I say it was life-changing because it, it made me confront a lot of the structural inequalities and inequities that are still kind of part of the work that I do. Um, it made me look at who I, like my own privilege and power as a, as a white woman. Um, and it also really kicked my butt in terms of those first couple of years of teaching because it really put into question everything that I thought was quote unquote, like the best practice didn't always work. And so then I had to be like, well, what does work? And it was actually, I didn't realize it until I actually decided to go back to do a master's that what I was doing in that position was kind of qualitative work. I was having to ask my students and my colleagues, um, like, what's working for you? How are you feeling about this? Tell me about your experiences. What do you enjoy? And using that data, if you want to call it that at the time, um, to, to make sense of my position in the classroom, but also what would work best for my students. And so it was a lot of kind of playing it by ear, making a lot of quick changes, um, thinking a lot about my positionality. Um, and, and that stuck with me even when I decided to go back to do grad school. And the reason I chose to go back to grad school was really about like, I have a lot more to learn. And it wasn't necessarily that I felt I needed to learn more about the practical side of teaching. I felt I needed that theoretical base and that philosophical knowledge to make sense of this experience that I had just went through. So um, I chose to go back to do um, my master's and then right after my PhD at Western. And I did it in education studies with a focus on Indigenous education. And it was really just kind of you know, five, six years of kind of making sense of that experience. And so usually, you know, when I go back to like, what's my why, like, why do I do the work that I do? It's really kind of going back to, well, it's because of those kids that I met in my early twenties who had such an impact kind of on my direction, but also on my own kind of growth and, and learning. And it was a lot of unlearning. I should also say too, is like unlearning everything that I took as matters of fact and basically throwing it up in the air and saying, it doesn't always have to be like that or it depends on the situation. So really long-winded answer there, but uh, yeah, my, it was really that experience that was kind of the catalyst for, for graduate school. It's fascinating to me because you have so much passion about that, like from the words you use and your demeanor, is, it just makes me so excited. But then you went from kids to 
professionals and medical education. What's the story behind why the switch? I would have expected you will go back to kids. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't think I would, I always thought, you know, when I finished teacher's college, yeah, it would be kind of nice to do a master's or it would be nice to do grad school. But at that time you're like, I don't really know what that means. But the more I got into research and, and the ideas that go into research and, and methodology, the more I was like, I really like the opportunities I have to think about ideas and to play with ideas and to produce knowledge. Um, that's, I think, you know, going back to my earlier thing about I love school, I think I just love being in a space where I get to be part of the creation of knowledge and the dissemination of that. Like to me, that's awesome. And so um, I was not, if you had asked me then when I was finishing my PhD that I would be working in medical education, I would have probably looked at you as though your eyes were falling out of your head. Um, it was not on my plan to, to go in this route, but my supervisor at the time, as you know, Dr. Kathy Hibbert um, was influential. She had been working a lot with folks at Siri. Um, she had invited me to attend a couple um, research seminars and she spoke so highly of the community and the collegiality there. And at the time I was not in a position in my personal life to, to move um, or to look for opportunities kind of outside the London area. And so, you know, I, I kind of was like, okay, well, maybe we'll, we'll think about this, this medical education piece. And um, she kept saying like, you have the, you know, your area of expertise in the discipline of education, you have something to offer. And at the time I wasn't necessarily convinced, um, but you know, a job opportunity started and I was able to move into like, kind of like a research associate role and then eventually kind of into an education specialist role. And um, it was, it was difficult to be quite honest, the transition, because it was an entirely, I'm sure as you know, too, Sire, like it's an entirely new language. Um, I remember <laughs> my first day, Mark, you know, I'd worked with Dr. Mark Goldschmidt. He had given me some data to review and, you know, the, even things like what's a resident, like what's a, what are you referring to when you say clinical learning environment? Like um, what's the CTU? Like it was all these acronyms. And I remember looking at um, my screen and being like, what did you get yourself into Sarah? <laughs> um, but over time I, you know, and asking a lot of questions, I started to find my footing and I started recognizing that I could actually take that knowledge and experiences that I had in education and actually bring it into medical education. And it might actually be an asset to the work that clinicians and trainees do. Um, and so for a long time, I was actually kind of translating in my mind what would be happening in the medical learning environment into what could happen in a classroom. And then, and then I would kind of make sense of it. Um, but yeah, it was over time and I started realizing too, that a lot of the issues and, and kind of wicked problems that, um, many people in medical education are confronting are very similar issues that folks in K to 12 education are also, um, grappling with. And so it was, it became evident that it wasn't as much of a leap as maybe I thought it was originally. So, um, in relation to that piece that you said, that you had to stay on. And even though it was a different language, I totally relate. It's like, for me, it was Spanish to English first and then engineering to medical education. Like there is a period of transition that you don't even understand a word. 
what helped you stay on? It's like not give up because it's so easy to give up and say, this is not my place. I'm gone. But you stayed on. Like what helped you besides just realizing that there were similarities? Is there something in your personal life that actually played a role? Yeah, part of it is I'm stubborn and I just want to figure it out. Um, <laughs> the other piece is I always I have this little rule in my mind that in any transition that you go through, be it personal or professional, there's approximately, I would say four to six months, maybe I would extend it to a year where it's just, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I don't use the word battle in a negative way. I just mean there's going to be a lot of learning um, and growth and moments where you're like, this is tricky and difficult but I'm, I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to kind of work through it. Um, and so I, I kind of kept telling myself that the other piece that was really important is I made it a priority to start carving out an area of interest that I felt spoke to my earlier interests in, in kind of why I went back to, to grad school. So I mentioned earlier that I did my research in um, my PhD work and master's was in Indigenous education. So I started, you know, after some time thinking about, well, where does that fit within medical education? And I started asking questions. And, you know, a lot of this was off the side of my desk. It was work that I was doing when I wasn't engaged in formal work. Um, at the same time, I was still trying to, you know, disseminate from my doctoral work. Um, and so it was slowly trying to carve out space um, for those conversations and for that thinking. Um, and then you start, you start figuring out to who are your allies, who are the champions who think a lot like you. Um, and so, and who you can trust to have those conversations with. Right. And so, you know, you and I would have those conversations. I would have those conversations with, uh, Corey, Dr. Corey LaDonna, when she was still at Siri and even when she moved to Ottawa, I have um, colleague, uh, a good friend of mine who works out West in education. So we would have those conversations and you start thinking, they're like, okay, I, I've identified those champions and people who I can trust. And then you start thinking, well, what can I do with this? And then you just kind of start laying the groundwork. So it certainly did not happen overnight, um, but it was just kind of one, one puzzle piece at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. I just wanted to mention that I find it really helpful when you say that you give yourself like tra a transition period for growth and not for beating yourself up. Because that's what we try, we tend to do sometimes. So I appreciated you sharing that insight a lot. Well, there are still moments where the imposter yeah. syndrome <laughs> flies, flies high. Um, but again, having those conversations or being like, I, taking taking the time to get out of your head, right? And be like, am I the only one who's who's struggling with this or are other people feeling that? Um, and so, you know, I was fortunate and I continue to be fortunate to surround myself with folks who are willing to have those professional conversations, but also those, those personal, more intimate ones as well. That's great. So now let's talk about your research. And I would like for you to just quickly tell us like what's your, how your research has evolved to this mm -hmm. day. And I'm curious to know about what has been a challenge that you didn't anticipate facing that. Oh, gosh. That you um, have to yeah, so I would, you know, it's funny. I've been working on my elevator pitch a little bit so I can try it out here because um, I've been trying to think what is the common thread that weaves together some of the different projects that I'm involved with. Um, and so I'm I think by nature, I'm a very reflective person. Um, I love deep and meaningful conversations with trusted friends and family. 
Um, and so I'm always curious what other people are thinking about. And so that's the first piece is that I'm really drawn to more narrative methods um, where there is space to have those conversations about topics that are challenging, potentially provocative, sensitive. Um, in terms of where do I, where does that kind of conversations fall in terms of my research focus? I would say I'm really interested in how institutions, so right now I would say faculties of medicine, how they are grappling with institutional calls around equity. So right now I'm doing a project that's funded by the Royal College looking at how um, medical educators and students are engaging with non-Indigenous um, faculty and, and trainees are engaging with the TRC's calls to action around Indigenous health. And then I'm doing some other work funded by uh, a SHRP grant that's looking at how folks are grappling with the in-the-moment challenges of um, diversifying incoming medical school classes. I'm So I mentioned earlier that I, I would love to be a talk show host. Yeah. Um, I kind of joke that being a researcher is a legitimate job for me to be nosy. <laughs> and so... I really like, and I don't know why, but I really love understanding the mess and the complexity that goes into some really difficult um, and complicated work. And I think implementing institutional calls around EDI is one area where that work, where it is quite complicated and quite sensitive, but also equally important work that we do it well. And so I'm really curious of better understanding that phenomena and also better understanding in that process, my role in it and my position in it. So usually in any work that I do, there is a parallel kind of trajectory of my own engagement, reflection, um, writing about it. You know, I think because I'm a qualitative researcher, similar to the work you do, that's already built into the process, but I have done some narrative work and some duo ethnographic work and autoethnographic work where I where I really turn where I'm both the researcher and the researched and I, I grapple with that ideas too so I typically choose topics that I'm just curious about but that I'm also trying to work through as well yeah one of those topics you just mentioned it like is, is very current indigenous uh topics and also EDI kind of uh, ideas those are very sensitive Mm -hmm. topics. And in terms of the challenges, what challenges have you encountered that you are navigating right now? And how do you what do you do about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of ethical challenges um, in terms of my position in relation to the work and whether it makes sense for me to lead the work or to be involved in the facilitation of that work. So um, it has been over the last couple of years, a lot of conversation and reflection around my role in this work. When does it make sense for me to speak up? And when does it make sense for me to take a step back and maybe play a more supporting role in that work? Um, I'm also really mindful that these, as you mentioned, these are really sensitive issues. People are at different levels of comfort in speaking about these issues. And so I am very mindful in how I design studies, how I talk about the work, how I even myself and my research staff, how we approach those interviews, how we do that. 
like how we set the stage as best as we're able to create a comfortable, inviting environment. I was going to use the word safe, but even there, that's a very contextual term because I can't really confirm that I'm creating a safe space. And so even that notion around safety is something that I've been really grappling with. Um, what does that mean? Um, it's different for different groups. Um, and so these are some, some of this is very on a philosophical level. Some of it is theoretical. I think a lot of the challenge, to be honest, in this work is because there is so much attention more recently being placed on it as well. The discourse is constantly changing as well. And so keeping on top of that, um, but while still wanting to be um, present and reflective and sensitive to the nuances of that and not making assumptions around, well, you know, the literature says this, so therefore I'm going to assume this population is going to feel this way. Um, really coming at it kind of on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Um, and also asking for help is, you know, the thing with my transition from, you know, working maybe more of a research to a faculty role, a lot more you know, you're the leader. People are looking to you often, like when you're a principal investigator on these projects, your research staff are looking to you for guidance, right? You know, if they find themselves in a complicated situation or having maybe a difficult dialogue with a participant, they're looking for you for direction. But because these are such difficult topics, I, I think one of the challenges is also saying sometimes to my staff, I'm not sure what the answer is here right now, but we're going to work it out together. This is what I'm thinking, but perhaps we need to seek further guidance and knowledge from a more seasoned scholar or maybe from someone who has a particular experience. Um, and so I think some of the challenges is just being when to say, hey, I need help here or when I need to pause. Um, and, and when, when can I, can I move ahead? I also think this work takes time. It takes building relationships. And that is very difficult to balance when you are in a position and the, um, the expectation um, for many folks who are in faculty appointments is to publish and to disseminate. Um, and thankfully I am part of a department in a community that has been very, you know, um, supportive and aware of how important it is to do the work well versus doing the work quickly. Um, and so I'm, I'm fortunate, but it's always percolating in the back of my head is like, you know, how do we, how do we keep this moving so that I'm fulfilling the expectations of my professional role while also fulfilling the expectations that I have to the participants in my study, to, you know, the grant that is funding this work. And so it's constantly um, a little bit of a balancing act, if I can be quite honest. Right. It's very obvious that you're a very reflective person and it's so good to learn about those insights. And I was thinking about like, if reflecting on those experiences again, because you've been reflected a lot uh, about Sarah, what has Sarah learned um, during this journey? that was maybe a little bit surprising or unexpected? Um, do you mean the journey of just working in this field or just the journey to where I am right now in terms of my professional kind of career? 
your professional career and you personally, what, what is something that you have learned about yourself that you probably were, was not aware before and it became really clear? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think I've learned a little bit or I've had sometimes moments where I, it, it's affirmed for me that I actually need to trust my gut. Um, so I'm a rule follower. I think you probably know this um, about me. I am fairly organized. Um, and I, I would say I'm fairly coachable too. Like if, if a trusted mentor said to me, you need to do X, Y, and Z, I'm probably going to follow what they say. But there are moments I've had recently where I'm like, that X, Y, and Z is not going to work in this context. My gut is telling me I actually need to take a different course. And then I, you know, and then it feels like a bit of a leap of faith, right? Because I'm going against the grain. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what I'm learning in this process, both in doing this work, but also in just where I'm at in my professional career is to really trust my instinct. Mm -hmm. And because um, sometimes I'm wavering, I'm like, oh, I just, I don't know, or you don't want to like rock the boat, but there are moments where it actually does make sense and it's better to pause or to slow down or to take a different course of action. Um, and that, and only you are the, may have that insider knowledge as to why that makes sense. And so I think what I'm learning is really to trust those, that inner, that inner voice that says, you know what, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel good right now. This doesn't feel right. Maybe you need to pause and take inventory. Perfect. So what is your gut feeling tell you about what's next for you? What's your next curiosity? Oh my gosh. I knew this question was coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a standard. So I, um, I'm going to be quite transparent. I actually don't know what that next curiosity is. And I'm going to, I want to speak a little bit about that because um, I like to know what's coming next. I like to know what's coming down the pipes and I don't really know. Um, I have a feeling that I might change course. Um, I still love qualitative work, uh, so I'm not changing that. But in terms of my kind of research focus, that could change course. But I'm not really sure what that's going to look like right now. What I do know is that I'm really interested in individuals' motivations for why they do the things that they do. I'm also really interested in transition points. So when people transition from maybe medical school to residency or um, transitioning from early faculty to maybe a tenured faculty, just to give a couple examples, I'm really interested in those transitions. So it might be something around that, but I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like. Part of it too is I'm in the throes of data analysis for a number of projects and I want to just be there. I just want to be present in the mess and I'm, again, this whole idea around trust, I really feel like I need to trust that what is next, what my next curiosity is going to unveil itself in time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm kind of just in the throes of data analysis, enjoying that, seeing what might yield a next curiosity, but not feeling attached to anything at this point. Oh, great. I do appreciate the vulnerability and also the transparency. It's so refreshing. <laughs> so I have another standard question that I like always to end with. There is a variation, but for you, I want to know what will be one thing that most people might not know about you that, ma that makes the research, as a person, sorry, that makes the researcher you are now. Is there an activity that you enjoy? Is there 
something out of this world that nobody knows about you? Hmm. I feel like I've, I've shared a lot about um, a little bit of my, so I love structure um, and routine. And um, I think certainly that reflects into the work that I do. But I think also every once in a while, um, the rule follower in me gets a little spicy and gets a little irked and wants to rebel. And so I think it's interesting almost that I choose the projects that I do because given that I love routine and structure, I choose some really special projects that just add complexity and, and a lot of challenge to the work. But I also, I use those as opportunities to be, I think, creative in the intellectual realm. And so I think what I actually see my research as an opportunity to play with ideas and to push a little bit of boundaries where it makes sense. And so I think that might be what at first glance people don't get a sense of is that actually sometimes enjoy being provocative, even though at the same time, it, it does sometimes give me, it can be anxiety provoking. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's important that sometimes we need to push those boundaries and we need to ask, well, why do we do it the way that we always have? And so that might be something that um, folks might not get a sense of at first glance is kind of, I come to research certainly with with an, an op, with the opportunity to engage intellectually, but I also see it as like um, a creative playground where I get to play with different methods and tools and ideas um, with the hopes of maybe pushing some boundaries. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of why I, I love research is it gives me that structure and definition. I like the rigor that goes into research and that we're thinking constantly about like, why are we doing it the way that we do? I like the design piece that comes with research, but I also like that there are some moments where no, we got to push we got to push boundaries. We got to push back and that you can have those affordances too. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think that might be the piece is that I sometimes like to rebel mm -hmm. and I like to use my intellectual space sometimes to, to do that work. That's perfect. I have to say playing sometimes is tiring. What do you do for unwinding? Oh gosh. So I am, yes, you're right. Um, and I'm one of those people, I like, I've had this conversation with a friend of mine. I love the work I do. Like, I, I still have moments where I pinch myself and I'm like, I just love being like being in the position that I am. I love that I have the autonomy that I have. And I love that I have the opportunity to be curious on a daily basis. Um, but what do I do for fun? I am, well, fortunately I am married to someone, thankfully not in academia. Um, who, who keeps my, he, he keeps me playful and, and he gets me outdoors and he's got a great sense of humor. And so we enjoy getting outside and doing walks. I enjoy reading. Um, I, I'm a little bit of an introvert, um, which is also, so I, I like time to just kind of unwind on my own um, and, and watch Netflix. Um, so, so lots of different things. We like traveling. We like exploring. Um, you know, if I have time, I like the opportunities to catch up with friends and, and just, so nothing, nothing too fancy. I'm a pretty down kind of a homebody, like to keep it close to home. I have a small kind of group of friends and family. Um, 
but yeah, I, I do like to get outside my brain sometimes because you're right. It can be very exhausting and taxing. Great. And you make a great point. Having a partner who kind of grounds you and get, get out of the clouds and come back. Absolutely. Helpful. He will say, um, it's time, Sarah, to put the computer away. You know, it's time. But he also knows too, like, when I might need that extra space, which I think is actually also important is someone who just understands when you need to kind of, you know, go to your office and, and just be with your work. Um, and he also, I think, knows how excited I am by the work that I, that I do. And, um, and it's nice to be able to celebrate those little wins with someone as well. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Sarah. I really enjoy your energy. It's been a great talk <laughs> today. Thank you for being with us today. Awesome. Well, no, thank you. I I'm look forward to future conversations. Perfect. And thank you everyone for listening. I will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syrah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.